0: Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building his church through the means of grace. In our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, in terms of the Lord's Supper, this sort of seems like a a two-part series in a sense. That Last week was the introduction and setting the stage uh, of the banquet narratives and what Luke is laying out with Christ passing through uh, to Jerusalem and ultimately to heaven. And so when we talk about the Lord's Supper, I wanted to get into something that's a more explicit text, whereas last week's more of the implication of the Lord's table and and what it means for us, whereas here we find in 1 Corinthians 11 the explicit reference uh, or exhortation of the Lord's Supper. And so when we look at this and, and we hear about the Lord's Supper and we hear about this exhortation of discerning. Uh, who we are before coming to the lord's table Uh, we hear about sickness and corinth in the context of this we hear about some who have died prematurely that we can understand where the medieval church and other people when you look even in the reformed faith there can be some uh, almost i would say superstition maybe that's not the most charitable language but it's almost such a fear of coming to the Lord's table that one looks at it and says, well, I don't know if I want to die and I'm kind of scared to come into the Lord's presence. But on the other hand, we don't want to say that this meal is is so light or coming before the Lord uh, that there's no reverence or, or no uh, honor to the living God either. So what do we do with this call for us uh, to deal with making sure that we discern whether or not we're worthy to eat of the meal. I mean, that's almost what it it comes down to. How do we know if we can come to the Lord's table and we're truly going to be fed and nourished as the Lord's redeemed? Well, as we look at this, we'll see first or ask the question, why the Lord's Supper? Why do we refer to communion as the Lord's Supper rather than the Eucharist or other words that have been used for it? Uh, why Christ's words. Secondly, why does he use these words? What is Paul doing with this? And lastly then, when we answer those two questions, we deal with what does Paul mean by this self-examination? So let's begin with why the Lord's Supper. If you notice in the Belgian Confession, the language that's used regarding the Sacrament of Communion, Uh, you have Holy Supper mentioned in the first paragraph. You have a banquet, which we covered last time in the second paragraph. You have spiritual table, again, communicating that notion of dining at Christ's table. You have holy sacrament, and then you have this table. So if you notice in the Belgian Confession, while it does say we can eat and drink of Christ, and we say this properly as we take hold of him by faith in the power of the Spirit— that the Belgian Confession wants to drive home that this is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. Uh, Obviously, the last paragraph makes that quite explicit, and and you wonder uh, why Rome is upset with Guido de Bray when this is passed over uh, the castle wall, at least as the tradition has come to us, uh, where he speaks of it being this damnable practices that have been tied to the Lord's Supper. Uh, you, You can see that certainly while Guido de Bray Desires to be charitable, there's also evidence there that he's not going to compromise in what he understands of the Lord's table. And this is not a resacrifice of Christ. So now if you look in the Belgian confession, it never uses the language of Eucharist. Now we can look at this and we can say, well, what does that mean? Well, sometimes you we can find in reformed writings even. Um, Rittermas, for instance, the coming of the kingdom refers to the Lord's Supper as a Eucharist and the Lord's table. And he uses those words in the intention of how the Greek uses these words. Uh, Remember that Eucharist in the Greek language, it just simply means thanksgiving. Uh, So when we say Eucharist as Reformed people, if you read this in Reformed work, it just means thanksgiving meal. That's all it really is is meaning. Now you look at this in a Roman Catholic tradition, Eucharist is sort of a thanksgiving because Christ is being re Eastern Orthodoxy, they would also use the language of Eucharist, uh, and when they use this language, it's more of Christ being present. Uh, it kind of depends who you talk to. They want to nuance nuance it a little different from Rome. In fact, when the Eastern Orthodox do the, the Lord's Supper, they put the bread and the wine together, um, which I think destroys the symbolism of what's going on in the Lord's Supper of, you know, the, the violence of what Christ endures on our behalf that he wants to picture for us. You know, this is my body which is broken for you. That's that's not a, a nice imagery. And this is my blood that's poured out. Uh, this is really uh, language where Christ is taking on the role of death. And so when we look at Eucharist, we say, well, well why don't we want to use Eucharist? And are we just scared of this language? Is it something where it's, it's so negative that we want to say it's wrong? Uh, should we look at reform writers who use this language and just write long treatises against why they're heretical? Well, the reason we, we don't want to use the language of Eucharist is that when you look at the language of Paul, he refers to it as the Lord's Supper. Now, this is important because, and we've had a URC minister who has gone Uh, to the Eastern Orthodox tradition. An OPC minister has just gone to the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Uh, So this is something that I do think is rather relevant to address and make sure people are aware of these things. One of the things the Eastern Orthodox will say is that the Eucharist has always traditionally been the center of worship. And so as I mentioned before, in Reformed churches, we have the pulpit in the center. Not that we want to put the minister in the center of everything, but we want to communicate that the Word of God is the center of our Christian life. So, so we want to really submit to what the Word of God is saying. So the Eastern Orthodox will say is that there is a tradition where the church has always used the Eucharist as the center of their worship. When you look at this, and it's true, you know, you can go back uh, with the language of Eucharist, going all the way back to Justin Martyr. So we're talking the 2nd century. Paul dies roughly 65 AD so you're looking at about a a 100 year time gap roughly maybe around there between Paul's death and and this language of the Eucharist being used and so what Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics will say is there's a long tradition uh, that this language of Eucharist has been used this is where it's important to understand 1 Corinthians 11 because if they say well we're understanding the apostolic tradition I say, well, let's look at the apostolic tradition. How does Paul identify the sacrament of communion or what they want to say, the Eucharist? He calls it the Lord's Supper. So we have here an apostle telling us the reality of what's going on here. So when we start digging into why people would use the language of Eucharist, well, you can see some superstitions, especially Hughes Oliphant Old goes through traditions in the medieval church where people become terrified to come to the Lord's table. the Apostle Paul speaks of some who have died. They didn't discern the Lord properly. And so you, you hear this and you think, what a, what a treacherous sacrament that I don't know if I want to come into the Lord's presence. What if, what if I'm not worthy? And so this is where, when, when we look at this, I, I want to say, okay, what's going on in Corinth? Why is Paul calling this the Lord's Supper? Which he explicitly says in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate or you eat. So the implication is that community thinks you're coming together and engaging in this sacrament. So there, there's a consciousness. This is their mindset. This is the Lord's table, coming together and celebrating uh, the identity we have. The Apostle Paul, when he identifies it as a Lord's Supper, tells us what this meal means. That we're sitting at the banquet table of our Lord. Now Paul, when he goes on, he uses the words of institution, verses 24, 25, and speaks there of the, the cup of thanksgiving and thanksgiving. So there's your language of Eucharist in, in the Greek. But the point that Paul wants us to understand is we're coming to the Lord's banquet table, right? This is a a picture we we have to understand. We're not necessarily coming to this table to judgment. We're coming to a banquet table, as we heard last time from Luke's gospel, where the master of the house is opening up his house and inviting uh, the riffraff, right? I mean, goes out to the borders of the Of the city, the places where you wouldn't normally associate with these sorts of people. And he takes those types of people and brings them into his house because the people who should want to be there don't want to be there. So Christ is speaking against the Jewish people that do not embrace the Messiah and are too busy with flimsy excuses and basically goes and gathers up the Gentiles, the unworthy, and brings them to this table. And so that's, that's the setting of this. And so the Lord's table is that communication that we are dining in the presence of the great king. And so there's, there's a very positive thing that's going on here. And so when, when we think about the bread and the wine, where you can look at Rome, they become rather superstitious about it. Where Rome says, uh, when the priest consecrates the bread and wine, that's when you have Christ Uh, literally entering into the bread and wine, becoming Christ. So it's at that moment, magically, it happens. And so you can't spill the wine, you can't spill the bread. It all has to be consumed and discarded accordingly. Eastern Orthodox would not be as specific as that. Uh, They would say, well, we don't know exactly when it becomes the body and blood of Christ. Uh, We just know that when you gather together for the divine liturgy, uh, Christ is there and that at some point you know that uh, Christ is part of these elements and, and it's not a spiritual union like we would emphasize as reformed people. It's a literal uh, changing into Christ. So it is important to understand that distinction and why the Belgian Confession is being so emphatic. Yes, we come to the table. Yes, we are nourished in the one-time sacrifice of Christ. No, it's not merely only a memorial. This is something where Christ does truly nourish and feed his people. And we are coming to his table. And so we say, why the Lord's Supper? Well, generally, the Apostle Paul uses the language of Lord's Supper. Generally, this communicates that banquet scene. So it's important to understand there is a a communication of heavenly banquet. Not just sacrifice, not just Passover, that's part of it, but the banquet scene, and especially here as Paul's addressing it. And so what what about Christ's words? Why why does he call this uh, to our attention? That when we understand this banquet as a spiritual table, as the Belgic Confession reminds us, and it says, Christ makes us partakers of himself and all his benefits. I I love that language. It's so beautiful because it's communicating to us that our redemption, our worthiness is found exclusively in Christ. We're coming to the Lord's table as unworthy sinners who've been made worthy in Christ Jesus. We are secured in him. All his benefits being applied to us communicates to us that once for all accomplishment on the cross, it never needs to be redone. We have Christ's Blood is a thing that ratifies and confirms who we are. Uh, It is Christ who has been raised from the dead. Remember we talked about uh, this nourishment by his blood. Forbidden uh, to drink of the blood of the animal. But Christ is one who commands for us to drink of his blood. To be nourished and fed. This ultimately communicates we're destined for his glory. So it's calling to our attention that future outcome... of of the reality that we will enter into his rest and when you think about this sacrament what is it communicating to us his grace right we're we're coming in the presence of God by the grace of God his his gracious condescension his coming to us and conferring upon us unmerited or demerited favor his his merits nourish us he strengthens He comforts, notice the language, our poor, desolate souls. I I love that as well because it it reminds us of our continual broken tradition, just who we are as humans, uh, that by the grace of God, even as we grow in conformity, and praise God for the growth, but even as we grow in conformity, we still haven't arrived at glory. We still have that brokenness, that sinfulness within us, that that the Lord needs to continue to chip away throughout our lives. And, And it's testifying that God has not given up on us. He's continually pulling us, continually sustaining us until the end. And it's also he sacramentally gives us his flesh and blood. And so this, again, is the Belgic wanting to emphasize, as the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics would say, well, the Reformed are just mere memorialists. It's just a mere sentimental feast. It's, it's something where, where nothing of substance is really being communicated. And in Belgics saying that's not true. We believe that Christ really does nourish us, even though we don't fully understand when or how he nourishes us, but he does. He nourishes us and builds up our faith through the visible presentation of the sacrament that's going on. And so when when we look at that, we say, okay, but we still have that issue of Corinth, people dying, coming to the table, and experiencing uh, what seems to be judgment rather than blessing. And and so what do we do with this? This is where we have to ask the question, what is going on in Corinth? And I think a lot of times when people just jump to the self-examination, they jump to the threats of the Lord's Supper. And you do find this more in, in a Pietistic to more extreme Pietistic traditions, but what what's going on in Corinth? And, and this is where we we can't just rip verses out of context. We got to ask that question: Why is Paul upset with his church? We find in verse eighteen a, a, a problem here, and what we find in, in verse eighteen is that the people continue basically to fight and compete with one another. Uh, so Paul is saying, Here, here's a problem. You come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you. Now, this, this language of divisions and, and what's going on is what Paul has addressed in the opening of this letter, that, that already, uh, when, when Paul interacts with this church, he's heard these reports, he's brought this up to them at the beginning of the letter. Uh, 1 verse 10, The church is to be united in the same mind. Uh, You have in 12, verse 25, the hope that the body is not divided, but the members come to care for one another. And so Paul's uh, aware of the reports that have come to him, that there are factions in the church. There's uh, different groups, different cliques that are forming within the congregation. And so he points out the problem. Verse 21, one's hungry. Verse 21 one is well-fed, and it's even reported they're drunk. Now, Paul's not necessarily saying that these statements are true. He's granting there may be some exaggeration here, but he's saying it's, it's possible. <clears throat> this could be what's going on. And so we, we say, okay, so then then what's what's the problem here? Why? I mean, obviously, you don't want drunkenness in the church, and it's not that Paul, when he says, you not have houses to eat and drink in. He's saying, well, just go home and get drunk, And then, as long as you're home and get drunk, that's fine. I mean, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you need to understand what's going on in the context of the church. So he's not advocating private drunk, you know, know, getting drunk in private, and that's that's appropriate. Just as long as you don't do it in church, that's not what Paul's teaching. But what Paul's calling to our attention, and what he wants us to understand is that this public display is something deeper than even public drunkenness. It's something deeper than even potential gluttony that's going on in the context of the church. Well, what they're doing is they're making those who have less than them feel disgraced. So you think of the makeup of the church, and it's, it's kind of a, something that I don't know if we can fully grasp it. We can try and do some cultural uh, parallels, but it doesn't really come across because we don't have slavery in the same sense that this church had slavery. Um, even our slavery in America was not the same as what you would have in Rome. And, and so the, these slaves could basically be so incompetent they can sell themselves into slavery. Maybe it's debt. Maybe they're prisoners of war. I mean, there's a variety of reasons someone could be a slave, but someone who's a slave is sort of just the, the scourge of the earth. You know, they're, they're not people you want to be around. They're not people you want to communicate as being on your social status. Uh, you certainly want to differentiate yourself from them. You, you want to communicate you're not the slave. They're the ones who are the slave. You're the landowner. They're not the landowner. Uh, you're significant. They're not significant. And so culturally, you want to make sure you you present your superior place. So what's going on with, with this right away is Paul saying, "Here you are, as those who have and are well off, and obviously you're going to have uh, people who uh, may not be able to fellowship in the synagogue for whatever reason. Sometimes you could see that in churches. It seemed that there were synagogues where Jews and Gentiles would come together and worship the Lord." Other scenarios, that seems, that's going on in, in Corinth is you would have someone who's pretty well off or, or very blessed. They would have a rather large house, and they would have the church in their house. Uh, so as they would have church, they would come together, and they would have uh, what they thought was the Lord's Supper, at least in their minds and their comprehension. And Paul's saying what you're doing is you're acting like worldlings. You're acting like Gentiles. You're, you're acting like people are outside the covenant community because those who are well off and own the house are making those who have nothing feel absolutely inferior and less. And Paul does this in a rather brilliant way because when Paul begins his letter and he talks about you're making others feel disgraced or humiliated, he's used this language in the setting of the letter to Corinth. But he's talked about how we are those who come together as uh, the scourge of the earth. We're we're the the shameful ones, right? I mean, who wants to embrace a a savior who has died on a cross? I mean, what what a humiliating, disgusting death. And he's saying, this is who we are. As the people who come together as the unwise, the the unrefined, uh, the, the humble, the disgraced in terms of the world. And identify ourselves with a Redeemer who has been publicly disgraced upon a cross displaying the wisdom of God. So it's foolishness to the Roman culture. It's foolishness to Roman society. And yet this is who we are. People who find our life in this Redeemer. That we are those who are nobodies who become somebody in Christ. And so the problem of what's going on here. When Paul calls us their attention, he's saying, when you come together, it's not for the better, it's actually for the worse. Uh, so what's happening now is these slaves are, are those that some say, they'd finish their task and then they would show up. But that's pretty unlikely because this is probably after they would have already come together for worship. So it's not people rush in and all of a sudden eat their meal And as they ate their meal, the slaves show up and nobody's left anything for them as an act of sort of social discretion of not having any consideration for them. But it's something more that when we think about these feasts, we we need to think about how these these homes were set up. So somebody who was prestigious and well-off, you would think about them having a main living room that would seat about nine people comfortably. So you imagine... Uh, Maybe putting it in our culture, think about nine people sitting in a living room around a table. These would be your more elite guests. So like we heard from uh, Luke 14, you want to move up the social ladder, bring people who are more prestigious than you. They're obligated to invite you back. That's how you climb to social status. So that would be those people around this table, the the people that you see as your equals or superior. Uh, So these would be the... the usually have the better meal they would usually have the better food or at least first pick then you would go out from that room and you would go to an atrium where you, that would house most or host at least 30 to 40 people say these are the people that would uh, have the second pick and it would also be very communicated the people around the table the people in the dining room they're prestigious people in the atrium not so prestigious uh, certainly less and so this is a clear distinction in, in the class of it. Um, so you basically, verse 21, I noted the ESV translated it, but I noticed here in this Bible, I don't think it translates it the same way. Um, oh yes, it does actually. So it is the same translation. I thought something was updated. But in, in the Greek, it can be first and priority. So the first person eats and comes together. Or it can be one goes ahead with his own meal as possession. I like how the ESV translates it because it gets at that. Um, It says one goes ahead with his own meal. So what this is, is basically Paul saying you're celebrating the Lord's Supper like the world does. You're designating meals or portions for prestigious people and non-prestigious people so you're making it very clear these people are significant in the Lord these people are not significant in the Lord so what what's the the solution what, what does the Apostle Paul present well he presents for us the very night when Christ was betrayed now if you think about the context of the Lord's Supper what do you have well you have the disciples and Luke's account I'm more prestigious no I'm more prestigious no I'm more prestigious so right here in verse 23 when he presents this we recall to that very moment around the table. And so Paul's saying, what did our Lord Jesus do? And what did he say in that moment? All of us find our identity in the same Christ. This means none of us are more worthy to have Christ than another. We are all those who find our worthiness by being the Lord's people. We are redeemed in the one Christ. So when Paul recalls Christ taking the bread, he's saying, what is this symbolizing? Why does Christ do this? It's not, it's for your prestige or it's for your honor, but he calls attention. This is my body, which is broken for you. And that's that visible presentation. Here's my body broken like the loaf of bread. And you think about the flesh of Christ being broken when he takes on the flesh just to uh, go to the cross and die in our place. The shedding of the blood. This is not something that's going to end well. Christ is making it very clear to his disciples. When I I move from this table, we're not going to go and sit on the throne of David. I'm going to the cross. My blood is going to be spilled out on the ground. And, And we know that doesn't end well. This is why Christ, before he goes to the cross, says, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Christ knows his fate. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthian church and reminding us today, why do we come to the Lord's table? It's not because we are worthy in ourselves. It's not because we have made ourselves worthy. We are only here because we have life in Christ. That's it. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, how can you set up this meal by setting up cultural uh, elitism with some in the church versus others in the church? Paul's saying, none of us are worthy to come to the heavenly banquet. Is this what Christ is going to do? I mean, there, there may be something, or maybe he'll have some of his prophets or some of his apostles and some of the martyrs. He may call attention to what they have done. That's possible. It's his kingdom. It's his banquet. He can do what he wants. But the reality is the very reason we endure until the end in our Christian life is because our Lord sustains us. And we need to be humble in that reality. Even the good things we do. You know, Venema in his book in eschatology has a really great chapter on the final judgment where he points out even the good things we do, even the growth we have made in our Christian life, and it's kind of discouraging, but even the growth we've made, it's only a testimony of God's grace. It's only a testimony of Christ continuing to chip away at the rough edges. Even those things, we can't come before God and say, look at what my hands have done. We come before him humbly saying, thank you. Thank you for the growth. Thank you for the deliverance. Thank you for conforming me. Thank you for not letting your hand off me, right? That's what it testifies to. It's not because we're prestigious. And that's what Paul's driving home to the Corinthian church. And you think about how the apostle Paul finds himself in the kingdom, not because of his prestige, but literally by the Lord dragging him in a very literal, uh, visible way uh, in that vision. And so when we think about, then, what's the problem in Corinth? The problem in Corinth is are celebrating personal elitism. So what is this self-examination, then, briefly? Well, as we look at this, we think about the Lord's Supper versus the Passover. When, one of the big distinctions of the Lord's Supper versus the Passover, uh, you have the requirements that in order for someone to come to the Passover, uh, they must be circumcised, part of the covenant community. Uh, One does not have to be a Levite uh, to participate in the sacrifice, which is what you would have as a requirement for the people of Israel. So that too is something that's a distinction, something new that's going on here. The Lord's Supper is also that reminder, as we said, it's the drinking of the blood of Christ, symbolizing uh, partaking of his life. But then there is that language where we have this this reminder in the Belgic Confession, where it warns us, lest by eating this bread and drinking from this cup, he ate and drank judgment unto himself. And again, this is coming from 1 Corinthians 11. So when you hear that language, you say, My goodness, I understand there's a distinction here, but, but how do I know if I really have Christ? I mean, what, what is this examination? And when we talk about this examination, the, the fundamental question we're asking is what? How do I know if I'm worthy to come to the Lord's table? And that's a problematic question, isn't it? Because once we ask that question, we miss the whole nature of our redemption. None of us are worthy to come to the Lord's table. That's what we have to understand. And of ourselves, none of us are worthy to come to the Lord's table. We have to affirm that. We, we, we don't come to the heavenly banquet because we are worthy. We come to the Lord's table because we are made worthy in Christ. And so, yes, there's a worthiness, but, but how does that worthiness come to us? Only in Christ. And that's what the Belgic Confession wants to drive home. That's what Paul is driving home here. So once we ask the question, am I worthy to come to the Lord's table? We're asking a bad question. We're going to get a bad answer. Because we're going to start looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people. We're going to start saying, well, I'm better than so-and-so. I'm not like, you know, the crack dealer or whatever's down the road who's engaged in all these sorts of things, so clearly I'm better. But if we're feeling elite and we want to beat ourselves up, well, then we're going to start looking at the more pious people and say, oh, if only I do works like so-and-so, if only I conform like so-and-so, then the Lord will love me. But you see how we're shifting the standard. There's nothing objective, and hopefully the kids from catechism will remember, We want to do our good works that proceed in faith according to the law of God and not according to the laws of man. And so when we ask ourselves, well, then what is this examination? Because clearly we are called to examine ourselves. We we can't get around that. That's what the text tells us. That's what our Lord tells us. That's what the apostle Paul tells us. So what does this mean? When we look at this examination, we have to understand we are those who have life in Christ. That's what we're called to do. But the Apostle Paul uses this language in other places. And when he uses this language, the first thing I want to say in terms of this reference, we want to be careful with this, but it is an important question. And he uses the same wording in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. Now, again, if we're not clear on this, we're going to have a problem. Because, again, we're going to start shifting our our standard, like Galatians 6, verse 4, where Paul exhorts us to examine our work. Now, now what's he doing there? Look in the context of Galatians 6. Paul is basically telling us not to compare our works to others, right? So what he's basically saying is, what makes you tick? Why, Why do you want to conform to the Lord? That's the question Galatians 6 is asking Is it because I want to look prestigious in the community? Is it because I'm scared of what people are going to think of me? Or is it because I really want to taste the goodness of God more and conforming to his will is a greater taste of his goodness. So I truly want to do this for the glory of God. That's what Galatians 6 is inviting us to to wrestle with. 2 Corinthians 13.5 then, when we go back to this exhortation for us to examine ourselves if we're of the faith. What's going on there? do I believe in Christ why do I believe in Christ what why do I think I need Christ right that's where we're starting why do I need Christ who is Christ right so when we start asking that question it's not let me just jump to my works let me see if I've done enough it's a question of who is this Christ what does it mean to live it out but he goes on and uses this in other places Ephesians 5, verse 10. Examine or discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. So again, it's that call to understand you're set apart in Christ. Now what do I do that pleases him or brings honor to him? How do I do this for his honor and glory? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. He uses this again. Test everything, but hold fast to what is good. So if we take this and we bring this back to Corinth, there certainly is something here that could lead to morbid introspection. And what that means is we go to a place where we basically put ourselves in a tailspin to Christian life, start saying, have I done enough good works? Can Christ really cover for these works or these sins? Is he really big enough for that? Well, this is where I would say, what does it mean to have Christ? Who is Christ? What has his sacrifice done? And when you understand the definitive element of Christ's sacrifice, and you begin to meditate on that, why did Christ take on the flesh? Why did Christ enter history? What does it mean that Christ has gone to hell and been emerged and emerges triumphant? Right. When we start ex- start there in our examination, we're starting outside of ourselves. We're looking to our Savior. We're assured of His definitive work. We're also understanding the depth of sin, aren't we? Because if Christ has come to take on the flesh, live a perfect life, die on the cross, endure hell, and emerge triumphant in a resurrection, that tells us sin's a pretty big problem. And so right there, there's a humbling effect. My goodness, this is what Christ has done. This is a solution to sin. Now the issue is, how do I move from, from this place here To Christ. How do I know that that Christ is my Christ? Well, we we can fall into the issue of works. Well, I I know I can't work to, to earn his favor. This means I need to take hold of him by faith. This is what Paul drives home to the Galatian church. Drives it home. Romans 4, doesn't he? Abram believed. As he believed in God, it's reckoned to him as righteousness. So I say, okay, I take hold of Christ by faith. This is my Christ. His works are my works. As he has moved from death to life, I have moved from death to life in him. So the sacraments communicating to me, I have this life. So now when we start looking at the things where Paul says, try to discern what's pleasing unto the Lord. This is where Walter Marshall, was so helpful, even just a few, well, barely a hundred years after the Reformation. Walter Marshall says, if we don't have a clear view of Christ, if we don't understand that we are declared righteous, justified in him before the heavenly courtroom, we, we can't begin to look at ourselves because it becomes too terrorizing. It becomes too frightening to recognize who we are as a struggling people. And, and we don't want to start you know, dealing with the issues going on in our life because if we start dealing with them, we're going to say, well, then Christ doesn't love me. But he says, when we put this in the proper context, I'm declared righteous in the heavenly courtroom because of what Christ has done. Well, Now I can start looking within myself. Why am I tempted by this? Why, why is this so appealing to me, right? I'm not losing Christ. Christ is mine. He, he's declared me his. He has redeemed me. He's made me alive. So now as I'm starting to grow, why why am I growing in him? What is the power that's present within me? So this is where we move away from that morbid introspection and start asking ourselves, why am I triggered by this? Why am I tempted by that? Why why do I, I seem to struggle with this? What's going on within me? I know who Christ is. I know he has redeemed. And this is where we can bring these things before our lord but this is also where you look at the nature of the corinthian church and we understand none of us are better than another all of us need the same redemption this is a problem with the pharisees they thought they didn't need christ the reality of what paul is saying to the corinthian church is not you guys are failures you're miserable there's no hope christ can't cover this As Paul is saying, you need to have a consistent view of Christ. Not celebrate your elitism, but celebrate his exaltation. Humble yourselves before the Christ who has humbled himself and who has been exalted to glory. When you come to this table, understand, you are a people who have been redeemed in the living Christ. He has laid down his life for you. And so we can't begin then with the question, am I worthy to come to the Lord's table? When we ask that question, we're going to get a bad answer. But when we start with the question, do I believe Jesus Christ has made me worthy? Now we're getting to something of substance because now we're starting to get within ourselves, why is it I believe the truth of the gospel but yet in terms of who I am, I don't always believe this. Well, what's going on within me that I don't think my Lord could redeem me? What about his redemption? What are the implications of Christ? And that's what Paul's inviting the Corinthian church to do and inviting us to do. And so we began with that question. What's going on in Corinth? What do we do at this meal? The thing that's going on in Corinth is they're asking the question, "Am I worthy to come? Am I worthy to come to the table?" And in and of themselves, they say, "Yes, I am," <laughs> and that's a problem. They're skipping the step of being made worthy to come to the Lord's table. And once we understand we are those who are made worthy, we can start asking ourselves, "Why don't I believe that Christ's life has really covered for me?" We're starting to get into the substance of our hearts, aren't we? We're starting to get into the substance of our doubts. We're starting to get into the substance of why we are not really turning to our Savior and seeing his redemptive work as sufficient. And we need to be honest. When you look at what the Eastern Orthodox are doing, Roman Catholics are doing, and I don't want to be here bashing on other traditions, but I call this to your attention for a reason. There's a lot of works righteousness that we find in those traditions. Now, Rome, some will, it will be in various degrees. Same with the Eastern Orthodox. But there's a lot of, I'm kind of made righteous, and I'm empowered to live faithfully unto God, and I better live faithfully to attain my justification or else. This is naturally who we are. We are created in the covenant of works. We have failed in the covenant of works. We want to prove our worthiness to receive God's grace. The Lord's Supper is communicating to us we are not worthy to receive God's grace. That's the hard truth of the gospel. But the glorious truth, we have been made worthy to receive God's grace. This is why it's his grace. So let us not, in the midst of our examination, doubt whether or not we have Christ. Even when we ask ourselves, am I of the faith? What are we asking ourselves? Do I believe Christ? Why do I struggle to believe Christ is sufficient? What's going on within me that I doubt this? Now the saints have doubted it throughout the centuries. But Paul is inviting us. Trust in your Redeemer. Trust in your Savior. And trust that as you sojourn in the power of Christ, you will conform to his will. And desire, then, to conform to the, to the Lord, as we are called to discern what's pleasing unto Him, but to understand our worthiness is not in us, it is in our Savior. Let that be our confidence as we come before the Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.